and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're discussing leadership and team dynamics within the sometimes opaque world of the boardroom with London Business School Professor of Organisational Behaviour, Randall Peterson. A founding director of the Leadership Institute at LBS, Professor Peterson has been editor of a number of academic journals, including the Academy of Management Review and Organisational Science. He's written numerous award-winning papers and is the author of the highly successful Disaster in the Boardroom, Six Dysfunctions Everyone Should Understand. Randall is a gifted and charming educator who provides some super insights. It's a conversation that you just won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Professor Pentland, thank you so much for uh, spending the time uh, to come in and talk to us. Much, much, much appreciated. My pleasure, really. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get into your research and uh, all of the, the, one, the wonderful studies you've done on uh, the highest levels of leadership, I could learn a little bit about, uh, about yourself, about your, your background. Um, understand that your uh, base degrees uh, were in agriculture and in psychology. I just wonder how, could you, could you kind of plot the path from agriculture to, um, through psychology, through uh, to the seats you're sitting in right now? Sure. My initial degrees were not psychology because that was forbidden by my father. Uh, I needed a useful practical topic and I always wanted to be helping or helping in some way. And so I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I started off in animal science um, and I was okay in that until I learned that most of what veterinary science does is make animals suitable for human interaction. So the money is all in, certainly was in things like uh, cropping ears and decoying, most oh, many of which in, in, in today's world now disappeared, you know, in, in many places. But at the time, that was where all the money was. I just thought I didn't want to do that. Um, and so the other part of my undergraduate degree was applied economics, which I enjoyed, but thought the base assumptions of economics didn't make sense. And uh, I ended up taking a psychology class. I thought, now that makes more sense to me. So I did my master's degree in the social psychology of education, loved it, went on to do a PhD in social psychology, um, and started my life in a communications department, and uh, my academic life, did research there. And I found that my colleagues across the way were kind of doing the same kind of research, but getting to apply it to the real world and understand, helping to understand the real world in a way that I wasn't being able to do where I was. So I made the change to a business school um, so I could engage the real world in, a, in my research and hopefully things I do help people. And one of the key bits of your research is about uh, personality and personality types. Could you care to share what you feel your personality type is and how that's impacted on your research? Oh, um, okay. Um, so there are a couple of aspects of my personality that are quite uh, other kind of more on the, I don't want to say extreme, but more, you know, I'm more on the margin, as it were. I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, so I'm very high on openness, which means I'm all about the big ideas. I love theory and ideas. 
I could spend my whole life just talking about ideas and not getting anything done and I'd be perfectly happy. Um, so when I collaborate with someone, I usually pick the people who are more into the nitty gritty, the specifics, right, to kind of keep me honest, to make sure that the specifics match up to these big ideas. Um, and then the other thing that I'm particularly strong on, as it were, is um, very high in agreeableness. I like to get along with people. Um, and so I, I also spend a lot of my time and effort helping and mentoring other scholars get into the profession. So I was recently given the Global Award from the Academy of Management for Best Mentor uh, in the field. And so for me, that was like the most important honor I think I could have ever received. Wonderful, wonderful. Congratulations, That's, that is a great honor, fantastic. Um, and what your real kind of area of at least most recent expertise is, is boards, board structures, uh, board cultures, and management, management leadership. Um, if we can kind of take it to the, the, the topic of the podcast, just kind of conversations on climate. You're also um, founder of the leadership industry here at the school. And a few years ago, um, a paper was produced that says that while climate change is undeniably you know, important, a majority of boards just simply weren't discussing it. Yep. Um, so just to introduce the theme, could you um, tell us a little bit about what drives attention, board's attention, to a particular subject um, and away from others? Well, I've been interested in boards from the very beginning. It's really why I went to do a PhD. I was uh, the student representative on the board of my university, and I realized I didn't know what was going on in the room, you know, you, know, you look and you, you listen, but it, there are so many levels at which it operates. Um, that as the outsider just sitting in, I wasn't getting it. I was fascinated by it then, I'm fascinated by it now, and it very much is to your point here, uh, boards deal with either the things that an individual or a couple of people really want uh, to have discussed, and or they also, the non-execs in particular, spend a lot of time talking to other people outside. So if it's in the atmosphere, right, then we're likely to talk about it. And as of a couple of years ago, uh, I mean, climate change was, was not really much on the agenda. And that's changing now in the last couple of years. But what I found most fascinating about it, of those findings, is that the industry farthest behind was finance. Um, which I find interesting because, of course, in, in most ways, they're the first in the line when, you know, climate change problems hit. Um, and again, that's starting, starting to change now, but it, it, they were slow to pick it up, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another, another remarkable uh, stat that came from that report is that 40% of uh, businesses in the energy industry weren't talking about climate change. Well, that too, right? That, that one is more understandable because you're trying to, you, you don't want to face the ugly truth uh, that you're contributing to a catastrophe out there in the world. But on the, uh, let's say, the financial side of things, where, like, you're absolutely right, like, you know, insurance companies will be one of the, one of, one of, one of the, Top the, of the first, tree, the first yeah. hits. Yeah, like, why, is there a structural problem with boards that they're not prepared to be facing these long-term issues? Or is it, does it just suit as a quarterly reporting? What, what do you think can make boards kind of ignore existential threats? Or is that changing now, is it, which I think you might have alluded to over a couple of years? It's, yeah, it's, it's changing so it's not where it needs to be. Um, yeah, they're, I mean, boards get very busy with the kind of things that they need to do. There are some sta there are statutory requirements of stuff they have to do. And I have never encountered a board that says they have enough time in full board. Everything gets pushed down to committee. And the vast majority of work is done in committee. 
unfortunately, climate change is not a committee responsibility. It really is one of those big strategic things that you have to discuss at full board level. Like we don't have much time, and it's not entirely clear what the implication is. We just don't talk about it. We put it off for later. And I think that's what's happened. I don't think it's been any kind of uh, malicious conspiracy. I think it's been, amongst the many things we have to talk about, these things are structured for me. Climate change isn't. And so I'll just put it off over there for now and come back to it when I think we know more. I think in your most recent update of that paper, um, there it did say that things were changing, but really, really slowly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think about it, this should have been one of the most important couple of issues on a board's agenda for the past decade. Well, that clearly wasn't happening. It's still not the most important agenda item on hardly any board right now, uh, let alone you know, the, the most important that, I mean, it's, a, it's that big existential question uh, for us uh, you know, in the planet. And you know, th those are also frightening issues to deal with and to say, I'm gonna take responsibility for some of this. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in France, some of the largest companies in the world are kind of stepping up and making all sorts of net zero pledges um, and taking some, some positive action. And even so, like some of the, the big oil and gas companies are, at, le at least on, on the surface, you're looking to, towards uh, taking some action. Uh, why do you think that there's more of a movement towards taking action? Is it like um, shareholder pressure, employee demands, activism, societal norms changing? I think the level of societal awareness and acceptance goes a long way, right? It's not just something that scientists are discussing in their labs. It's now something that we're talking about in, in the political world now. When that happens, then it becomes mainstream, then people will talk about it. So I think that's, uh, that's the biggest thing that's changed in the last few years. Um, and of course, that's always driven to some degree by you know, the more radical kind of protest that happen, right? That creates news. And I remember having this conversation when I was on my first board too about, you know, the rule I always played was, look, I'm not that radical person doing that stuff, like those people out there, you know, protesting and making noise, but they're onto something. And, you know, I wanna make sure we are dealing with it, you know, before that comes into our room. You know, and that's a rule that once that exists out there, right? Um, somebody in the room can pick up and, and use as a way of really pushing the public. Yeah, there's, there's like, at this moment in time, there's an awful lot of uh, protests going on, and very high profile ones. If you go back to the, um, you know, throwing, throwing soup on, on works of art, even though they did know that there was glass on there, so the work of art would not, the, the masterpiece would not be harmed at all, it got worldwide uh, attention. Even like the, the Crucible recently uh, interrupting the snooker. <laughs> Again, worldwide attention, but for, I don't know, the, the messaging does seem to be getting through. Yes, I know, I think it really has. I think things are actually moving now. That conversation is happening, starting to happen now. Um, there's a lot to do yet, but there's a lot that's starting to happen, which is encouraging. Now, uh, if we can move, move on a little bit towards uh, your, your book, uh, Disaster in the Boardroom, what drew you to the idea of, uh, of conflict? Why did you want to be digging, getting your academic teeth into the, idea, into the work of uh, disasters? <laughs> right. So two things going on. One, I've been interested in conflict for a long time, as I grew up in the most conflict-diverse part of the United States. Uh, local culture is don't discuss conflict. Let's pretend it doesn't happen. 
Um, I'm highly agreeable. Conflict feels painful. And there were one finding that particularly got me going, which is that people who are highly agreeable, who tend to avoid conflict, ultimately end up creating more conflict because they don't deal with the conflict. When it's small, it blows out. And I've always taken that to heart and said, look, we need to deal with conflict before it blows up. And so that, that's part of it. And then in the other case, Jerry Brown, who uh, has worked with us in the Leadership Institute and given us some funding, et cetera, came to me and said, I've been interested in boardroom disasters for 35, 40 years. I've collected every newspaper clipping I could ever find. And he literally had a big trunk full of newspaper clippings and said, we need to do something about this. Nobody's talking about this. And I thought about it and thought, he's right. Nobody's talking about it. And nobody's written the book. There are lots of sources on how to be great in terms of governance, very little on how to avoid mistakes and problems. So it's a kind of unique contribution. And then the feedback after publishing it has been exactly that. Has been, you know, nobody's really looked at it from these angles. This is really interesting, totally different take on on boardroom decision making. Brilliant. Well, yeah, you come up with uh, six different types of failing boards. Uh, would you care to, uh, to, to to briefly kind of describe each of them for us? Sure. Um, so, you know, the first one um, I, I was thinking about in terms of what are the, what's the function for each one, which creates the particular type and the particular problem but also suggests the solution, right? So the, the core one that everybody understands is principal agent problem. Sometimes management, because they don't own the business, oftentimes, right, they might wanna do things that aren't good for the business, that are, but they're good for them. Uh, that's a classic, every finance 101 class has, talks about that. And it's an important problem, but not the only problem, right? So that's the, the, the as it were, a starting point. Um, but then we move on to other things like it's impossible to understand fully everything that's going on out there. It's a complex world right now. So how do we help boards uh, and then the executive make sense? So how do we sense make uh, here? A third one is about uh, what I, what's called resource dependence, which is the more stuff you have, the more resources you have, probably the better you do. So again, as a director, you should be contributing your network, your knowledge, etc. cetera. Um, then we're talking about, well, what we're talking about is, the, the fourth one is about um, the people who run the organization. As a board, you select the CEO, and it's oftentimes involved in the senior executive selection. Are you, is the culture right that you're, that it's emerging the right type of leaders that are being produced by this organization? One of the best bits of advice I ever got was one of my finance colleagues who said, when a company hires an outside CEO, that's probably a good time to take your money out. Interesting. Why? Because there's something wrong. They're not producing the right type of leader for their own organization. Okay. Number one. And number two, new leaders from outside oftentimes are like mixing oil and water in terms of they have a cultural history. The organization has a culture. And we don't often enough think enough about how these two are going to come together. So if they, and, and the culture, if the culture is the problem, Right, there, a degree of clash is, is appropriate, but how much clash is appropriate? How much of clash is beneficial? Right, a little bit, yes, too much, nothing happens. Right, and then we you move on also to stuff on things like group dynamics. As a board member, you have to work with other people. 
people think that moving from being an executive to being on a board is like obvious and straightforward. These are two utterly different roles. As a, an executive, you're mostly held individually accountable. As a director, you're held collectively accountable. And according to the world out there, you have no individual opinion. Um, and if you're used to having your own opinion in your own way, that's really hard to do. It's also hard to understand how to get other people to change their minds collectively. Again, power dynamics within executive, a CEO can tell other people what to do. You go to a board and officially everybody's equal. So I could tell you what to do and you can tell me to get lost, right? So how do I genuinely persuade you, not just issue orders? And so understanding that dynamic and the shift uh, with that um, is kind of the, what the last one's about. Um, I've given them all names. Um, you know, the subordinated board is the first one. And our missing voices is one of the others. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. So they, I've given them names so people can remember the core symptom. But the core, the real issues are about what is it you're supposed to bring to the board? And then what does the solution look like? So, um, you know, if, if you are not handling the group dynamic very well, right, that creates groupthink where everybody starts to think alike, right? And so the antidote to that is really rigorous decision-making where you really explore ideas and you're open to criticism and to the idea you might be wrong, right? So being able to do more of that, so that's a nice link that all links together in the book. Mm -hmm. Brian, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the best pieces of advice I've ever given when I was uh, joining boards was um, always make sure that you're right leaving the meeting rather than going into it. <laughs> I, don't know. I think that's a great piece of advice. And while it's hard to do, to genuinely adopt, it is so easy to walk in, think, you know, like, I'm going to say this and not really engage the collective problem on the, that's on the table with a collective issue on the table. For sure. But if you're going to be an effective director, you've got to be able to deal with those issues. So one of the um, like your, one of the key parts of your book is case studies, and one of the yeah. most one of the most kind of relevance to case studies to what we're talking about today is the BP Deepwater uh, Horizon case. Yeah, absolute horrendous uh, natural disaster. Um, yeah, it was largest marine oil spill of all time, caused trillions of dollars worth 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 of damage. Um, could you um, explain that as? An example of, like, through the lens of board of a, a dysfunctional board, or as a, as a, a failure of boardroom, as opposed to just an accident or just inevitable consequence of a, of, of of it being an oil company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know accidents do happen, and uh, we you know we can accept that. Um, what were particularly critical of them, though, is that in the first week of the accident, um, the board for a variety of reasons, new chair, uh, not, not, not as many people in the industry as had been in previous boards and so on. Um, the actual rig was not owned by BP, was owned by a subcontractor. And so they kind of do that, did that kind of, they just were slow to pick it up. Even though it was the BP name all over the news, it was like, well, technically it's not our rig, right? And that's the point, that's what we are critical, is to say, whether it was your wing or not, your name is on it, your reputation is there, and quite frankly, it's a horrible disaster. You know, try to get 
And so there was some time lost in managing that. For me, that's the worst of the disaster, even if we can accept that accidents happen. Now, but accidents, although sometimes happen for a reason. And that's, you know, for, for many people then, the, the, the other critical thing, of course, is there had been a series of accidents for BP uh, over the previous 10 years. And this was the latest and most traumatic uh, of the lot. And it's the one that finally woke up the board. I mean, give them some credit. After, the, after this event, the VP board really picked it up and ran with it. But they were slow to run with it, and they were overly focused on squeezing out profits, you know, that probably contributed to the accident happening, right? So if we're, if we're getting very specific about what we're critical about, those would be the, the things. I, me personally, I'm, it's the slowness to act when something happened, but others have pointed out, you know, pointed to the, you know, the squeezing, you know, of the business and cutting corners. I mean, well, we know they cut corners uh, in some cases um, that contributed to that disaster. We think. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was one of the findings of the the, the, the court case against them. Just far too focused on short-term profits. Like we have a concept now of like stakeholder capitalism, where you need to be looking at all sorts of not just uh, maximizing you know dollar value to, to shareholders, but looking at other greater uh, stakeholders. Uh, but in in your book, you dedicate this entire chapter to the whole whole concept of looking after stakeholders. Could you talk to us about how? That approach might have assisted the, the BP boards in not ending up in the situation that they were in? Yeah, no, of course. Um, and interestingly, that was, one of, that was one of our big debates, whether to include that chapter or not. Because, of course, it wasn't strictly responsible for these disasters. You know, although we thought it answered a lot about how to avoid them in the future. That's why we included it. And I'm so glad we did. Because it, it, you know, it does really help us understand... Uh, why we should be critical of some boards that are kind of technically, you know, okay, but not really, we know it's not right. And what is the language? And that's the language that really, like you are ignoring the interests of, you know, the rest of the world here in serving yourself. Um, and that we should be able to say that's not really acceptable. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to play, you know, big businesses play incredibly important roles in our lives. People don't think about it, right? And again, one of the things that we, the point we make in the opening of the book is all about, you know, uh, when we went to a publisher, uh, they said, oh, it's an interesting book, but it's not, it's not relevant to many people, so what would it sell many, many? So, you know, they passed on it. We're like, you know, these businesses, so we, we actually reinforced the front chapter and just said, no, these big, big businesses affect your daily life every day, right? either directly, you know, as a consumer, but oftentimes indirectly, right? You polluted the Gulf of Mexico, right? That affects, you know, so many people. Um, and uh, again, it was the right decision. And um, I guess it's the point really why stakeholder, the stakeholder approach is so important and, and right when it comes to understanding boards and why um, this focus on, I mean, climate change is a perfect example of not dealing with the externality uh, of what you've created, not wishing to get too, too technical, right? Uh, we, had a, we had that earlier conversation about how it can get, there's a whole range of stuff that can get very technical quickly. Uh, but yeah, the externality of like just not taking responsibility for that.
but just on the, exactly that point, um, you made another excellent, excellent point in the book that there was a lot of doubts about whether BP could survive this, like financially, because of the trillion dollar settlement, reputationally, you had the President of the United States calling them out as being irresponsible. Yeah. It was, there, was, there, there was severe doubts about whether BP would, could continue. And the point that you made then was what implication would that then have on pension funds? On, on, it could bring down you know, quite significant parts of pension funds, which is bring down quite significant parts of savings and for, for each and every one of us. Absolutely. And not, and not paying taxes. And we, we talk about some of these big ones. Uh, the, you know, governments need tax money to support what it is we as collectively believe is, you know, through our political system is the appropriate things to be spending money on. And when big sources of revenue disappear, right, then you've got to make it up some other way. The follow-on point from that is it's quite, quite an interesting um, concept that um, if you take that thought to its, to, to its next step, which is, well, these companies, not particularly BP, but you know, any company, companies within, within that, that field and many others, um, if you did properly price in carbon, and you did go to and say, we'll say, well, what are the limits of uh, in the attraction industry of uh, reserves we can take out of the grounds within within our, our, our current economic budgets? You're literally you're writing off 90% of reserves, and if you do that, they all fail instantaneously, and that just causes economic you know implosion. And I think that's been the problem with a lot of the carbon schemes all along is it's so disruptive to all the historical way we've run businesses that businesses aren't prepared. So if you were to do something like that, it would need a long ramp up in order for companies to change how they operate. For sure. Uh, but the question I was, 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 I was trying to get to was, if you are either seen as, like, for example, like the oil and gas industries or the banks, um, like too big to fail, um, or you're so in, in, entwined, yes, both could be examples uh, of so entwined in the system, people want to keep you going, <laughs> so be politicians or, or whatever. Um, what does that do to your boardroom, to the boardroom dynamic? If you're seen as too big to fail, or you you believe that you're not going to you're not going to fail, you don't have any that type of accountability, you no no kind of fear of failure. What does that do to corporate governance? Well, I think you're right. That is an excellent point, um, and I think that was part of the reason BP was a little, probably a little slow off the mark as well. Just thought like, you know, so big, there's so much money in it, right? And the fact that their survival was a, became a real question at some point, I think is one of the key reasons why they did what they did afterwards and actually got their act together. And, you know, they have been, you know, uh, uh, doing many exemplary things, right? That moment. Um, and I think about other big companies too, um, that, you know, the too big to fails, um, you know, well, this, this point of you know, capitalism, you have to allow some to fail in order to ensure that people take it seriously. We've forgotten that lesson now, haven't we? Yeah, we've kind of forgotten that lesson. But, but it's always kind of what's the benefit and what's the cost of doing it in each case? Um, is it really too big to fail? Maybe you let one fail. And I think this is where we go back you know, to the 2008, right? Allowing movement to fail, right? Which at the time kind of sounded, made sense, but then there was a whole set of other things that followed on from that that maybe it wasn't a good idea, right? And I think that then colors, you know, the things like the Deepwater Horizon scandal 
is to say, well, we did that and it was a whole global meltdown, right? So if we allow this one to fail, is it also going to create some form of global meltdown? And is it really worth that trade-off right now? And you can see that exact, that exact kind of thought process happening in the, like, the Swiss banking system very recently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, 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 you can't fail. No, two of you get together, you'll be okay. Yeah, or in like in America, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, yeah, so very, so very, very, very quick cobbling together of agreements to try and get try and keep all this going, despite um, agreements being made not so long ago, albeit under a different administration, that this size was was fine to fail. Anything underneath that? No, no, no. We don't worry about. It. But um, people make decisions at the moment. Politics changes. Politics. It doesn't. The winds come and the winds go. They do. They do. And lobbying is a very powerful thing. So. True. So yeah, kind of moving on, uh, moving on a little bit. Um, another big, big part of uh, your research is uh, on personality and personality types, and how personality types uh, influence um, leader leaderships and boards. Uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about the most represented personality types on, on in, in kind of senior leadership positions, and then perhaps underrepresented types as as, as regards the, the population on average. Right, sure. Um, so the most representative type, or the most common type to, re- to get to that level, are there are five personality dimensions. The first one is, it's called either neuroticism or emotional reactivity. It's the experience of negative emotion. Um, and most CEOs and senior executives are low. Right? They don't have a lot of negative effect floating around. Right? Otherwise, you, why would you be, if you stressed out over everything, you would never make it in that world. Um, the second one is extroversion. Extroversion comes in two pieces. One part is chatty, sociable. I like I get energy from being chatting to you, and the other part is dominance. I like to tell other people what to do. Right? Dominance is you know, if I have, if I look at the world, dominance is probably the best predictor I have. I'm just going to end up. You have to be not only comfortable but enjoy telling other people what to do if you're going to be a senior executive. Now, interestingly, though, among senior executives, the person. Uh, or a group with the lowest dominance score tends to be the most effective. So it does seem to be you have to be dominant enough to get you get you to be in the game, but not so dominant that you just bulldoze everybody. Um, openness tends to be a mix of things. Some uh, openness is about liking with specific and technical versus the big ideas, and there's uh, both of those can rise to the top. Agreeableness, go along to get along, um, versus there's a really clear answer here. If you don't like it, tough luck. And it's usually played out, you know, between arguing between the budget. There's an answer here. There's so much money we have, and making our people happy, you know, or engaged. We can only spend, right? So how much can we spend to do this thing that we all know is helpful, right? And what's the clash between the two? Um, historically, we've always had pretty low agreeableness among senior executives, like the budget is ultimately the most important thing. Interestingly, I wrote an article for the FT about, gosh, over 25 years ago now, saying that that's on the move. We're hiring more and more agreeable senior executives. Pandemic, it took a big leap into the agreeableness territory. All the execs I'm working with these days are pretty high in agreeableness. Pre-pandemic, they weren't, okay? So empathy has become the watchword right now. Is it permanent change? I don't know, we'll see. And then uh, the last one um, is conscientiousness, order, structure, you know, keep you on top of things, etc. That one is really high and has always been something that 
is highly valued in the world of work. So that's the personality profile that has traditionally risen to the top. The one that's really changed is the agreeableness one. Um, what does that mean? Well, I think it means a couple things that we, that senior leaders oftentimes aren't sensitive to the stresses they put other people under because they don't experience much stress. So they don't understand why you feel stressed as a worker. Um, that um, on agreeable or on uh, extroversion, for example, is that, you know, um, if you're too high, right, there's a lot of bulldozers out there in senior executive roles. Um, and it would be better if there were fewer. But you have to be dominant enough to want to be there. And what do you think uh, happened in the, during the pandemic to, 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 to kind of swap that agreeableness around? Like the most obvious thing might be kind of the, the different ways we're working. Is it, is it, do you need to be more agreeable to be working with people that you're not, that you're not physically interacting with? Or is it like down a computer screen? Is that, is that something to do with it? I think there's two things I, I, that in my classrooms that come up all the time for why we think this is happening. One is that when you're working with people virtually, you see a curated uh, show, right? As opposed to when I work with you physically, I can see how you're dressed. I can see whether you just physically look healthy or happy or not, right? Unless you're a super actor who can keep pacing on all the time. Um, there's a range of things that we didn't realize are important to understand. It's like, oh my gosh, you obviously look like, you know, there's a problem here, uh, you know, and I might back off a little bit. But when you're on a screen and you're being checked, you're having your check-in for the week, right? There it is, it all looks great, everything's fine. Um, and unless we really build relationships with people, they don't tell us the truth. So that idea about being agreeable, building relationships, etc., it's really important for that. Um, but even as we come back to work, um, the other thing is, of course, we realize we, we missed relationships in the pandemic. We got lonely, right? So as a result, we want to connect with other people again. Um, that one may wear off <laughs> uh, over time. But as long as we're in a world in which people are working remotely, you really need to be cautious about the people uh, in there. And of course, depending upon the economy, the, you know, the war for talent is, is much more about engaging people than it is about a lot of budget stuff that oftentimes gets implicated. But um, I think the big thing is really reconnecting with people and um, having to manage remotely now. So historically, you've been, we've had more dominant personality types um, running businesses. Um, and if, kind of, kind of linking a couple of things here. So if we can assume, and like as part of LBS's ethos, that we think that leadership um, can uh, influence the way the world does business. So we're, if we're making the assumption that leaders um, imp impact on their, their companies and the companies then impact on the world, um, and you put that in aggregate, you can have um, a dominant leadership style making big impacts on the, on the planet. Uh, can you see that that type of personality type might have made an impact on issues such as climate change? Well, of course. Uh, if we have, I mean, the players that are there are dominant. If that's not something, you know, because that, that, that climate change um, problem 
really has been championed by the young more than the established, you know, from its very beginning. Um, it's also a lot of the digital problems are in a kind of similar kind of boat where, you know, even though the average worker these days, right, you know, understands climate change and, you know, is, you know, understands digital, the people who are running the show, <laughs> not so much, right? Because they didn't grow up with it. Um, and what we know from demographics of boards, I've studied boards all over the world, you know, the average director, right, is in their 60s, okay? Um, Mid-60s is where you typically get, you know, directors. And then, you know, right after 70, they disappear quickly. But that's the kind of pinnacle before everybody leaves. And if you think about what the world was, okay, and how they grew up, they would, you know, I'm not even that age, and I didn't grow up with, you know, with either of these issues, I, you know, myself. These are things that I've learned, and I'm in an environment where learning um, and research are important, and so I've been aware of them for a long time, but if most people are not, and you're working, you just don't see it. And if you're dominant in that world, right, you may, you may hold other things out. I think it's, an, you know, it's a entirely possible, uh, plausible, you know, suggestion. Mm -hmm. And if we were, let's say, if you're chairman of, uh, of, of a board and uh, you were looking to recruit a new CEO uh, that would, that you believe, will be looking at you know, sustainability and the, 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 long, the long term of the company. And um, what personality types would you be looking for? Well, I think the personality type that generally gets to the top um, is a perfectly appropriate one for this. This is really about values. And values is the, you know, a separate kind of topic of stuff that I, that oftentimes, I oftentimes talk about as well. Um, and for me, I would want to see a track record over some time of engagement on the issue. Uh, anybody can say anything in the short term. Or, you know, there are people who interview well, but aren't really what you want. Uh, we all know that. We've all made those mistakes over the years of somebody who sounded great in an interview, but they're not actually. So, yeah, I want to look backwards and say, show me how you've been committed to this for the past at least a decade, right? You, if you were working on this a decade ago, like, I, do I trust that this is real for you? I love the title to um, a recent paper you wrote, um, Kill, Kill Chaos with Kindness. Yes. Yep. Yep. And we, I know we kind of touched on it uh, a little bit um, on how kind of agreeableness uh, affects uh, team performance. I know, certainly in the climate frame, there's been a temptation for people to be looking at this uh, on, a, on a war footing. That we must go, we, we must be like changing all, changing all systems, stomping everybody down and go and try and focus on this one thing. But I think the implication of your paper is we may be better off just taking a more, because uh, it's a big, scary, existential thing, um, you know, we might be better off taking a more gentle approach to it. Is that, do you think that that's a fair, a fair assessment of, of the learnings from that, from that? I think it really is, because what the, the core of that paper is that uh, when you're working on problems that have clear right and wrong answers, agreeableness neither harms nor hurt, you know, or helps you. It just kind of is. Um, and as a result, it's not something you know, historically we haven't prioritized that uh, very much. But when you're working in problems there where there's a degree of judgment, 
where there's a degree of uncertainty, where it's not entirely clear exactly how this is going to work out, a real one that suddenly pops up is this hugely positive thing, you know, in teams. And we looked at a huge number of teams uh, working on a variety of problems, and the less structure to the problem, the more, you know, agreeableness was a big positive. So, you know, I think climate change and the issues surrounding it fit very nicely into that description. You know, uh, I mean, there are certain things that are hard facts, right? But how we deal with them is going to come down to judgment, to discussion, to and agreeable people want you to keep talking and want us to work it out, right? And I think that is um, a great formula for dealing with these issues. Cool. And do you have something else been willing to go? Your um, your your intermittent pieces on Elon Musk. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just make everybody's got, got, got an opinion on them. Um, what lessons would you take on uh, sustainability and leadership from Elon Musk? Well, I, I, we can take both extremes or both pieces. Uh, first of all, I mean, the thing he's been particularly good at is seeing the implications of this and knowing when and where to get in in, in business that will actually address some of this. Put yourself at the center of it. And then if you do, you're going to make money. I, I think he, you, I mean, it's hard to fault him on that grounds. On the other hand, his interpersonal style is pretty toxic. And, you know, if we part of, you know, if we, don't, if we look beyond climate change to ESG goals, right? People, human capital, etc. I don't want that. And so I would be so I, you know, as, as you suggest, there's some amazingly good and amazingly bad. And, uh, and there's nothing in between. That's the thing about the guy. But are there any lessons that um, CEOs who wish to disrupt an industry can take from him? Or is he just so unique that you just feel shouldn't even try? <laughs> well, what you have to admire is the sheer boldness of saying, this is what you believe, you go out there and get, you actually do that, right? Rather than try to like, well, hedge our bets, be safe, etc. He just went. Um, and if you really believe it's true, you should just go. And I, I think there's something to that, that, that I like about the style. I would also argue that so did Liz Truss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's the risk. If Elon Musk were a politician, he'd be long gone, right? And if Liz Truss were a CEO, she'd probably still be there. The thing of it is, is that, you know, that style, um, in political world, it requires compromise. In the world of business, if you own the capital, right? That's why, you know, Elon Musk comes up in my conversations all the time about leadership in my classrooms. You know, isn't he a good example, you know, for some? I'm like, mm, no. Um, and so, well, but he's, you know, he's still in the role. Yeah, because he owns the capital. If he, he, I mean, would he survive as the head of a listed company? No way. And then you have your answer, right? A listed company is that step closer to, you know, the, the political world where you are required, you know, to bend a little bit. Um, and he just won't, uh, which is part of what we admire about him, but also part of, and he could get away with it, given the 
environment he's operating. I should, uh, but let's 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 move on. Um, one of the one of the one subjects I really want to want to talk to you about is uh, is the theme of diversity. Like it's uh, something that's it's increasingly important and very understandably so in the climate world, um, and it's also something you've been thinking about uh, for for quite some time. Um, could you tell us what kind of different types of diversity you you've come across and how they correlate to performance? Sure. Uh, diversity obviously comes in lots and lots and lots of different forms. Uh, but, I, but I guess a couple of the big, the forms that people care about are demographic things, right? Race, gender, etc. And we care about that from a social justice point of view as much as anything. It, it, it's interesting. We did this study for the FRC here, uh, the Financial Reporting Council on Boards and Diversity. And one of the main things we told them is they, they really bang on about diversity and then complain that companies don't aren't doing anything about it and don't care about it. But if you actually talk to directors, they think about diversity all the time. It's actually central to what they're doing. But of course, they're talking about two different types of diversity, the neurodiversity versus the demographic. So that was our main important, one of our most important messages back to them was get specific. Because, you know, these are different things um, and have different kind of implications. Now, as long as we live, though, in a world in which demographic people are treated different based on their demography, whether it's physical handicap or gender or race, ethnicity, whatever, the way people are treated impacts how they think. So there is a connection between the two. And my favorite example is always Barack Obama, who you know, is born to a white middle-class woman, single mom, but yeah, it's not that unusual, right? primarily raised by his white middle-class grandparents, right? Went off to a fancy school in the, in the Northeast, in the US. Uh, did a little community activity and fundraising kind of uh, stuff. Got a law degree, right? And then entered politics. Like, I got, went to the Senate and to be honest, that's kind of the story of a huge number of US presidents. But of course, he didn't operate the way former US presidents did because of the color of his skin. And that's not that the color of the skin directly having an impact, it's the way he was treated as he grew up. So if that, that means though that even demographic diversity has some of the same impact that neurodiversity has in the world. Um, and it's that you know, different ways of thinking, different ways of being, different ways of experiencing the world that are the things that have value in the business and on the board. Um, and Diversity on its own, though, doesn't actually get you much difference because the more diverse boards create more diverse outcomes. So um, this traditional business case for diversity is actually shaky at best. And in fact, can do some damage, according to some of the research from my colleagues here. You know, if we put a woman on the board and then we, we turn around six months later and say, you know, basically what we do is we say, oh, we're more diverse, we should be doing better, show us the money. So, yeah, right? And of course, ironically, they do their worst work under the microscope. So it actually can be problematic. Um, instead, there's a slightly different version that is right, which is to be world-class, you have to be diverse. Because if you look at the distribution, right, more diverse teams produce more diverse outcomes. So the very best teams in the world and the very best boards and the very worst boards 
are highly diverse. And the question comes down to how do you manage that diversity? Are you genuinely taking it in? Are you genuinely utilizing it? Do you really listen to it? If you do, you're gonna get a huge benefit from it. If on the other hand, you don't, those people feel marginalized, not only do you not get those ideas, you're down one in terms of rowing in the boat. It's a, it's a lose-lose. So, to be world-class, you have to be diverse. There's no, that's actually not debatable anymore, really. But like any investment, right? I like ROI, return on inclusion, right? It's like return on investment. If you manage your, you take a little risk to make money, to make, more, to make better return. Same thing here, more diversity, better return if you manage it. So how do you then move it from the, from the box of representation into the box of Great question. And, you know, it comes down to some very simple things that they tried to teach us all in kindergarten and some people never learn uh, or they forget along the way. Uh, so in our study, the single best predictor of all of that was do the directors believe that the chair is a good listener? Simple item. Right? That was our best predictor of all of it. Closely related things here. Like, does the board understand that problems are complex and require kind of trade-off thinking, right? Or do, do they believe it's the right moment answers? When they understand that there's judgments and trade-offs, they do better, right? It's that kind of, and it's all that kind of stuff that is really where inclusion happens, right? If I'm interested in the range of ideas on this topic, I, you know, and I will ask people, like, well, you know, this is my perspective, what's yours, right? That's bringing that perspective in, yeah? So it's just very straightforward stuff like that, that it sounds simple on page, is actually hard to deliver in person. Um, and the last topic I wanna, wanna cover with you today is the exact opposite of that. It's conflict in things. <laughs> sure. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, particularly about the value of conflict within things? Right, I mean, so in fact, they're, they're not opposite. You know, diversity, it's in the mechanism by which it works is by first creating a particular type of conflict, task conflict, debate, discussion. Sometimes we don't like to use the word conflict because somehow it's negative, but even if we just use debate, discussion. The stuff that if you manage it well, usually positive, right? Different perspectives, we learn, right? From all that. The problem is, is that in most real world boards, it's highly correlated with relationship conflict. You keep disagreeing with me because you have a different set of values and experience from me. But over time, that gets kind of old. And I start to get, you know, react negatively to it. As soon as I react negatively, you pick that up, you realize it's not going well, you oftentimes reciprocate, and now we have relationship conflict, negative affect, I hate you, stuff going on. That is stuff that a board and a group can manage, right? It's hard, but you can do it. The next stage is process conflict, which is I want to make decisions by majority rule, and you want to have to have everybody agree consensus. Why? Because most everybody's on my side. There's you and one other. It's easy to vote you down. Let's just move on. Highly efficient. As soon as you get into that game, you might as well turn out the lights. It's just really game over. Because as soon as you realize we can shut you down, and another issue tomorrow, you realize you're in the majority, you shut me down. 
it becomes this kind of contest, right? And as soon as you're into this, I win, you lose, the organization is not going to benefit from this. So, um, you know, all, all of that means then deal with the, you know, the conflict, the task conflict stuff upfront and early, um, have, uh, allow a certain amount of it. In fact, you encourage a certain amount of it. If it starts to teeter over into relationship conflict, beware. Uh, try to then pull it back a little bit, because if you don't, you're going to end up down here on process conflict and and bad outcomes. That sounds really hard. <laughs> it sounds really difficult if two people do have relationships over time. You know, can go down paths, and it's and is it inevitable that that one or other of these two individuals must 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 depart for the good of the firm, or are there so like some some best practices for helpfully re resolving conflicts? Yeah. Well, it turns out every relationship has some conflict embedded in it. Yeah, even marriages. Right now, one of my former mentors uh, studied relationships and marriages, and you know the point he made is every even relationship has within it a serial argument that just won't go away. Because based in values. Um, and the only way the two parties can deal with it is if both parties implicitly agree to never discuss the topic. So we discuss it a few times, both sides feel a bit hurt, and we both actively steer away from it. Um, and, and in essence, that's what you have to do. Um, because if you don't, right, it just keeps coming back, right? You get more and more you know, negative uh, on, on, on people. Um, and this is where even third parties can help, you know, uh, especially a chair, but even other party, other directors can say, if somebody, sometimes people love to drop the bomb in just to distract you from what you're doing over there, particularly if I know you're not in agreement with me. Um, you know, anytime you get those kind of games, the third party needs to say, stop. We're not going to discuss that. Let's pull that back and let's focus on the stuff that does matter. Um, that is very doable. Um, a little awkward the first time, but that's the best way for both parties to implicitly agree never to discuss the topic. Yeah, but taking it back to a climate conversation, this may be a reason why lots of boards just kind of go, oh, just too much disagreements on this. Let's just. Put it away. Let's just ask, we'll talk about other things we can all have common ground and talk on. Just that one there is too difficult. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. And I think there's some truth to that. That it's, you know, because climate, there's this, there, the implication for value, of one's values, right? That's very much implicated. Um, and anytime you've got values-based disagreement, that's far harder than interest-based. Interest-based, we negotiate. And we figure out, we might, try to, we might try to grow the pie, we might try to you know, trade things off, there are all kinds of strategies, but when it's values, my values are sacred to me, I don't compromise them. Same for you. Now what do we do? That's the nightmare stuff. And considering we're living in a world where being parts of the population have taken not population of here, but population of other parts of the world particularly, have taken climate to be a political football, uh, a left or right issue, which it really shouldn't be in any way, shape or form, it then becomes a values issue. And if it becomes a values issue, well then, are we, are, are we all doing, should we all just, just, just forget about this, and let's just go and enjoy the last 15 years we have left in the flats? 
Well, I think that's a great question, and that is the truly scary part of all this, right? Um, if that's what it becomes, then we really are in trouble. I hope not. Is there a way back? Is there a way back? There is a way back. There are a couple of conflict resolution strategies. Um, so, like, the strategy that they use between nation states, you know, is something called GRIT. Graduated and Reciprocated Initiatives in Tension Reduction. It's a classic. I get you to give some tiny thing, right, to establish a little bit of goodwill. Then I get the other side to give something slightly bigger. And then the other side, a little bit bigger. And you work up to an agreement. That's, that's the classic conflict. There are a few others, too. Uh, but that's the classic one that I suppose it, but the thing about that is it does take time, right? And it doesn't always work. I mean, um, as we know, nation states sometimes are in permanent state of, yeah, yeah, terminal yeah. chassis. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially when fundamental things are in play, you know, our livelihoods, land, right? Our, our, our way of life. These are things that people don't negotiate away easily. Very true, very true, wow. They says that there's a grain of hope within that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we do know something from evidence-based research that, uh, that does work uh, when it comes to conflict and, you know, maybe we have to treat, um, you know, the debate about climate change in the same way we treat um, international relations sometimes. Yeah. Uh, nuclear proliferation was something we have managed to, to, to get a hold of for the cooperation that we did over COVID. It's like it shows that it's possible that we can. It is possible, yeah. So I'm, and, and I'm always, you know, an optimist. And what, again, what, you know, what research shows over and over is if you believe it's possible, it is possible. And I, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, do magic, but if you believe it's possible, that means you act as though it's possible, which means it's, it is possible. Doesn't make it easy, but it does make it possible. Always, always at the end of uh, these conversations, ask for one, one piece of advice. And uh, in your case, you built up such a uh, um, level of expertise on what to do when things go wrong. I think it would be uh, a great thing if you could um, think about for a second. If you could offer a kind of a disaster preparedness kit, so if there were, say, um, three questions they should ask themselves in the face of the face of disaster uh, to try and get you know, better outcome for what they be. Well, and the, the most important thing, though, I want to point out is that most people go to wanting to do action without asking questions. So the most important thing is to ask questions before you act. Um, and it should be questions revolving around what's happening right now, or what's happening here. Right to try to understand what's going on in a kind of um, in, a, in the least emotional way we can we can make, um, and then we need to ask some questions around what are the emotions that have been implicated here, right? Because we'd like to ignore them, but we can't, right? And if you do, and then what kind of what would be what support or what actions would be most helpful? based on those first couple of questions is the way I would approach this. So I'm understanding the truth of it, the objective reality, the emotion associated with it, and then trying to 
see if 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 people have preconceived ideas um, and whether we can actually do something with that. Fantastic. That's wonderful advice. Okay. Thank you very, very much for much for your time. Hugely appreciate it. I think it was a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. Hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels, and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.